what are you on right now? Dude, I'm on sleep medicine. I have so much oh, spare time right now. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, we lucked out. Welcome back to The Last Week in Medicine. It's April 7th, 2021. I'm Stephen Jenkins, and today I'm joined by my trusty co-host, Austin Rupp. Hello. And, uh, returning guest, Dr. Brian Locke. Thanks for coming back to join us, Dr. Locke. Uh, I'm happy to join y'all. So uh, how's, how's fellowship treating you? It, it has been a uh, crazy year to be doing uh, pulmonary and critical care. Um, I'm a first-year fellow for those. I haven't met, um, but it's been really good. Um, I'm on sort of a easier block this month, and uh, it's much appreciated. A little rest. Excellent. Uh, so remind me, where did you grow up, Ryan? I, I actually grew up in Montana, um, and then I was in Colorado for med school and then hopped over here for residency. So I guess we're year five now in Salt Lake. You're, you're a Western man. Yeah, a lot of a lot of mountains in all those places. I saw a crazy video of you on Instagram uh, doing something crazy off a ski jump. I don't even know what that was, but I didn't think it was possible. <laughs> Cork seven twenty, get corked. <laughs> uh, yeah, Austin's right. Yeah, yeah, I did uh, park skiing for quite a while before med school, uh, which I was telling Austin before we started recording that I am like double the age of most kids in the park. Um, so I had to, had to make sure I could still do it. <laughs> well, it looked like you pulled it off pretty well. Didn't need any ibuprofen after? Uh, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily go that far. I was pretty sore after. <laughs> Only oxy. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to old age. Okay, well... <laughs> Uh, since people only listen to the first seven minutes of this podcast, we should probably jump right in and, and get going on some of these papers. We got some really interesting papers, though, this week. It was like a deluge of interesting journal articles uh, pouring out, and so it was hard to pick, but we got a few good ones this week, and, and Austin's going to start us off with the first one. Yes, I am. So I'll be talking about a paper titled Discontinuing Beta-Lactam Treatment After Three Days for Patients with Community-Acquired Pneumonia in Non-Critical Care Wards, a Double-Blind Randomized Placebo-Controlled Non-Inferiority Trial, aka the Pneumonia Short Treatment Study, or PTC for short, um, somehow. How do you get so, PTC yeah. from Pneumonia Short Trial? I couldn't figure it out. Was PST taken? Come on, people. I don't know, man. Yeah, it's French. Um, oh, that's true. <laughs> so uh, this, was, this was written by uh, Dean et al. and was published in The Lancet on March 27th, 2021. What is that saying, guys, that like pneumonia is an old man's friend or something like that? Old man's best friend. Old man's best friend. Yeah. So that's the background here is that pneumonia is prevalent, deadly, and disproportionately affects the elderly, which is pertinent to a rapidly aging U.S. population. 
Uh, I feel like Cap is is super straightforward, you know, like come in, give him ceftriaxone, transition to cefuroxime, done, right? But also very complex, nuanced, and we could probably talk about it for hours um, in as far as the diagnosis, workup, treatment, etc. So we're going to try and do a little bit of that here. Um, but Cap always kind of is a is a tricky one in some ways for me. So uh, a little bit more background, US guidelines from 2019 recommend no less than five days of treatment while European guidelines recommend no more than eight days of treatment. Uh, the US guidelines again were from 2019 and the European guidelines are from 2011. And essentially shorter durations, shorter durations than five days have not sufficiently been studied per the authors. There was a 2006 study in BMJ of 119 patients who received three days of IV amoxicillin with transition to oral amoxicillin for an additional five days or placebo, which showed that the uh, placebo arm was non-inferior and, and had very similar failure rates between both arms, about, about 10%. However, the authors of this trial point out that those patients were younger and less sick, and so they felt like this was a justifiable study and a necessary study because antibiotic exposure results in resistance and uh, adverse events and other bad stuff. And so anytime we can kind of hack a few days off an antibiotic treatment course, we try to do so. So this was a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled non-inferiority trial. As the title states, it was done across 16 hospitals in France. Included patients were greater than 18, had moderately severe pneumonia, were treated with beta-lactam monotherapy, and achieved clinical stability within 72 hours. To break that all down a little bit further, uh, pneumonia was defined as at least one symptom like dyspnea, fever, et cetera, and a consolidation, which is how you diagnose pneumonia, so that felt appropriate. Moderately severe CAP was classified as patients were admitted to the hospital in a non-critical care ward. And then the stability criteria, all of which had to be met again at 72 hours, were apyrexia, heart rate below 100 beats per minute, respiratory rate below 24 breaths per minute, arterial oxygen saturation of 90% or higher on room air, and systolic blood pressure of 90 or higher and normal mental status. Uh, and apyrexia was defined as a temperature of less than 37.8, should have mentioned that. So they had to meet all of those criteria at 72 hours before they were enrolled in the trial. Uh, key exclusion criteria were signs of severe or complicated community-acquired pneumonia, like abscess, plural, massive pleural effusion, serious chronic respiratory infection, etc. Uh, known immunosuppression, healthcare-associated pneumonia, or suspicion of aspiration pneumonia, any other infection necessitating concomitant antibiotic treatment, uh, Legionella, infection due to intracellular microorganisms, and advanced CKD or ESRD. So um, really kind of run-of-the-mill pneumonia patients, as far as I could tell, um, excluded patients that were more complicated or had other stuff going on. So after 72 hours of beta-lactam therapy, patients were randomized to Augmentin, um, which is amox amoxicillin clavulanic acid, uh, which was 1,000 milligrams of amoxicillin and 125 milligrams of clavulanate three times a day times five days or placebo. So one arm was an additional five days of Augmentin, the other arm was placebo. The primary outcome was cure at 15 days, which was defined as apyrexia, resolution or improvement of clinical signs or symptoms, and no additional antibiotic treatment since the last follow-up visit. 
This was assessed by two independent reviewers, and if there was not agreement, they met to come to a consensus. Secondary outcomes included cure at 30 days, all-cause 30 days mortality, adverse events, pneumonia symptoms, and quality of life and length of stay. They decided on a non-inferiority margin of 10%, and they performed both intention to treat and per-protocol per analyses. So moving into the results, there were 310 patients that were enrolled, seven withdrew consent. So there were 151 that received uh, beta-lactam, additional beta-lactam antibiotics in the intention to treat group and 152 in the placebo group. Some were excluded in the per-protocol analysis for various reasons um, as an aside. So the median age of patients was 73. There were 41% females. 24% um, had at least two comorbidities. The median pneumonia severity index score was 82, and 39% required oxygen um, on admission. Baseline characteristics were relatively well-matched, and I thought it was sort of interesting the initial antibiotic therapy that they received was, was augmented, um, about 65% in both groups. And it wasn't clear to me if that was actually oral or IV, which is a little bit confusing. The appendix says that they could have done oral or IV, and then the paper nor the appendix specify. So a little bit of a criticism there. Um, and only 6% in both groups, about 6% in both groups received ceftriaxone was that initial 72-hour antibiotic. Um, so, you know, to take one step back, it seems like these were mostly normal pneumonia patients. They were relatively well-matched, fairly representative, again, of patients that we take care of, um, but the antibiotic regimen up front was a little bit different than, than one that we might use. In the intention to treat analysis, 68% of the beta-lactam group and 77% of the placebo group met the primary outcome, which was cure at day 15. So the between group difference was 9.42% with a confidence interval of 0.38 to 20.04, which met the non-inferiority criteria. And then the per protocol analysis, the results were similar. 68% of the beta-lactam group and 78% of the placebo group were cured at day 15 for a between group difference of 9.44%, again, meeting their non-inferiority criteria. The additional analyses that they performed also had mostly similar results. The day 30 analyses met criteria for non-inferiority with between group differences of 0.47% and negative 1.42%. There were no differences in the death rates, no differences in the percentage of patients that reported at least one adverse event, 14% um, in the placebo group and 19% in the beta-lactam group, with the most common being digestive disorders as far as adverse events are concerned. There's 19% of those in the beta-lactam group and 11% in the placebo group. Um, it's worth noting there were two serious adverse events. There was hepatitis in the placebo group and a rash in the beta-lactam group. And, um, you know, it was also notable that the largest causes for not meeting the cure criteria were no resolution or improvement in symptoms. Um, that was 24 out of 35 folks in the placebo group, or 69%, and 78% in the beta-lactam group. So, you know, symptoms are important, but um, interesting that that was the main driver of not meeting cure criteria. And then, as an aside, results consistent results were consistent among subgroups and, and no secondary outcomes showed statistically significant difference. They do throw in a little line about patients younger than 65, the PSI of greater than 91 did have a statistically significant difference, but it's not really expanded upon and, and seems to be sort of brushed over. Um, so, you know, overall patients, there, there was, there was no 
getting three days of IV antibiotics and then stopping was not inferior to getting, and sorry, not IV, getting three days of antibiotics and then stopping was not inferior to eight days of antibiotics. They're getting three days of antibiotics plus an additional five days um, afterwards. So, you know, potentially um, a big deal here, potentially practice changing. I had some additional thoughts, you know, they talk a little bit about aspiration pneumonia um, not being included, and I'm not sure that aspiration pneumonia is really that different than CAP. Um, so, you know, worth, worth mentioning that. Um, there, were, there were low procalcitonins at, at baseline. There was 0.55 for the placebo and 0.2 for the beta-lactam group which I think may, might speak to a little bit of a larger issue, which we can talk more about. But I think the, the diagnosis is potentially called into question there. And then again, that sort of dovetails with their failure rate or the folks that didn't meet the, the cure at 15 days. It seems like they had a, a, a lower than expected percentage of folks that were cured, you know, sort of 68 and 77 or high 60s to, to high 70s. Um, is lower than they expected. They said, you know, they thought they would reach a 90% cure rate and obviously did not. And again, I think that calls into question the diagnosis a little bit and might skew the results. Um, you know, there were lots of patients initially excluded due to severe pneumonia and that didn't meet those clinical stability criteria at 72 hours. The authors state that about 60% of patients presenting with CAP would be eligible for, for this, you know, trial or, the, or sort of a three-day antibiotic trial. So it's certainly not all comers with pneumonia. And I think, you know, anecdotally, we see a lot of folks who probably would not meet those, those clinical stability criteria at 72 hours. So keep that in mind. But um, I think interesting in that maybe shorter is okay in some folks with some caveats. And I guess at the end of the day, I would say I'm not probably going to do this at this point um, just because I think it needs to be replicated and there are some methodological and diagnostic issues. But what did you guys think? Oh, man, I'll hop in. Um... I thought this was really interesting because when I cruised through, I actually made the assumption that the, you know, the higher cure rate was going to be in the more antibiotics arm, which was not the case that the shorter course was very close to statistically significant in terms of being better, which is a little counterintuitive, especially since, you know, persistent respiratory symptoms were the most common reason for a failure. And I, I think, you know, I guess I'll go there since you hinted about it, about, you know, that I think this all sort of focuses on the diagnosis of pneumonia, just in that all comers, the estimates are around a third of community acquired pneumonia are viral pathogens. And so, you know, almost by definition, that side of the patient population can't benefit from antibiotics and that if you further select down to say all right they have to have gotten mostly better and not been that sick um, in order to be randomized it makes you wonder you know how many of these patients needed antibiotics at all um, and that you know how much of this failure rate that appears to be higher in the longer group is really just unrecognized side effects of the antibiotic treatment um, and so i agree with you it's a little hard to to know what to do with it. It sort of points to the way forward of, you know, we'd really like to be able to identify, you know, what are that half of patients that get labeled at CAP that don't need antibiotics at all, and then treat the ones that have 
antibiotic responsive pneumonia appropriately, but I thought it was an interesting study because it kind of brings that point to the forefront. Yeah, agreed. I, I mean, I think, you know, their, their criteria for diagnosing pneumonia seem pretty straightforward. You know, one symptom, you had to have a fever and you had to have an infiltrate on chest x-ray. But like you're saying, Brian, like, you know, the fever could have been viral, didn't have to be a bacterial pneumonia. And the, the median procalcitonins were pretty low. Um, and so it does make you wonder if a, a decent chunk of these patients were coming in with viral pneumonia or other respiratory issues, like maybe they had like some heart failure or something that was driving their dyspnea. And that's not going to get better with antibiotics. I thought it was interesting that only 39% of the patients needed oxygen on day zero. And I'm wondering like, why, are, why were a lot of those even admitted to the hospital? Like we rarely, you know, because if you're sick enough to be admitted, it's usually you got some vital sign issues. And the most common is probably that you need a little bit of oxygen. And so you're admitting, you know, 60% of these patients weren't even on oxygen when they came in and you give them three days of antibiotics and then five days of placebo and they're still okay. So whatever that means, I don't know. Um, but yeah, kind of, kind of a surprising study. And I, I do think it would be interesting to see it replicated. And, and like you guys pointed out, you know, these are really patients where at three days, their vital signs are normal and they're totally stable. And we see that, you know, we, we, we see that antibiotics are miraculous and people do get better pretty quick once you start them on antibiotics. I would say like, that's not always the case. I've, I've had some pretty sick Legionella pneumonias where they're like, they look terrible for days and days and days. But like your regular strep pneumo pneumonia, they could turn around pretty quick. And so, yeah, I mean, if you're seeing that they're totally stable at three days, maybe there is room there to stop antibiotics. Um, and I guess I would assume that we could extrapolate this for the way we treat it with a different beta-lactam, like we don't use Augmentin or Unison that much for pneumonia. It seems like I only see that get used on the POM service. We're definitely ceftriaxone people because it's the greatest antibiotic God ever invented. But that's all yeah. I have to say. <laughs> yeah, the Augmentin's nice. It gets into the plural space. That's why. Oh, is that a fact? Yeah, yeah. So it gets used a lot as sort of empiric treatment for paranemonic effusions. Mm. Hence uh, the plural service or the uh, pulmonary service. Freudian <laughs> slip. That's actually service. true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, Stephen. I forgot. I I actually did not realize that they did require a fever. I must have just blown over that in the manuscript. But you know, that's that's at least something was was awry um, and does suggest that it wasn't these patients. Um, you know, with heart failure that you admit for, for cap or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think it's a little hard to know exactly what to do with. And I think, you know, if we had Dr. Spivak back on the show, she would say, definitely do this. <laughs> I mean, if folks get so much better at day, you know, three and are looking great, it probably does, you know, make some sense to try them off, you know, and say, come back if you get sicker or, or watch for a day or two in, in the hospital. But then you're talking about, five days for cap. It's like, eh, I don't know about that. You know, I think that comes into the equation in that you'd like to just send folks home with, 
you know, some oral antibiotics so that you feel better about what's going to happen to them outside the hospital. But yeah, food for thought. I think stay tuned. It's sort of interesting too. I mean, we don't make much of a clinical distinction between, you know, aspiration pneumonitis or some other pneumonitis that's going to resolve on its own and a mild pneumonia. But, you know, you do have to wonder in a lot of these folks that kind of come in mildly ill, they have some respiratory process and some abnormality on their chest x-ray, you know, how many of these folks, their immune system would fight it off on their own without antibiotics. And that might explain why, you know, you do less and less antibiotics. And if you're selecting for this mild population, it may be that they're not destined to get a socked in pneumonia and they would get better on their own. We never know, but, you know, we end up sort of treating them all because we don't want to be caught on the wrong side of that. But, you know, I think it, the natural history of very mild pulmonary processes isn't always known. And yeah, I think when, when you're, anytime you're looking at a non-inferiority study too, you've got to, you got to accept that, you know, the, the treatment plan that you're studying could actually be slightly inferior to the regular and you have to be okay with some failures, right? And, and I think, yeah, cut, cut off people's antibiotics short, but it does seem like more and more there's, there's tons of evidence for lots of different infections that shorter is at least not inferior, sometimes better. And you got to ask yourself, well, what's the trade-off? A couple more days of antibiotics, is that really going to cause that much harm versus withholding antibiotics for two days, like what's the risk benefit ratio there? I think that's hard to, to calculate for most individuals. And so, I don't know, I used to be like a seven day pneumonia guy. Like I treated everyone for seven days because it felt good. And if I thought they had a fake pneumonia, then I would do five, right? Because we admit a lot of fake pneumonia. <laughs> and I'd be like, yeah, they can have five days, that's fine. But if I really thought they had pneumonia, I was like, no, nah, they're getting seven. And now I'm back to like, okay, everyone's getting five for the most part because we are, we try to follow guidelines and, and be evidence-based. But, you know, maybe there'll be a day where I'm giving the fake patients three days of antibiotics and the real ones five. I don't know. That day could be today. I kind of like that. <laughs> if I don't know that they actually have pneumonia, or it's like, you know, the UTI, like, oh, they got one dose of antibiotics. I'm not sure they had a UTI. Eh, it's probably still in the bladder. It'll take care of it. <laughs> all right. Anyway, that's all I have to say about that one. Cool. All right. Thanks, Austin. So this next paper, uh, I feel like was generating a fair bit of buzz on the Twitter sphere. Um, people were, were really into it. So I was like, well, I guess we better talk about it. And since the uh, statistics are super wonky and weird, we decided to assign that one to Brian. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm happy to do it, man. This is a, this is a great study. So um, the study I'm talking about came out in uh, JAMA Internal Medicine last week. It's called An Association of Intravenous Radio Contrast with Kidney Function, a Regression Discontinuity Analysis. Um, and so as uh, Jenkins is mentioning the uh, regression discontinuity analysis is probably the least familiar part of this. So I think it's probably worth dwelling on what that is uh, for a moment before I get into the details. Um, and so, you know, back in all the way up to sort of study design 101, you know, when you're assigning treatment groups, ideally you'd like to have two treatment groups that are 
at the same risk for whatever outcome you're measuring before they get the outcome so that any difference that you see afterwards can be attributed to the, you know, treatment that they got. Um, and so, you know, that's the fundamental reason for randomization. And it's also the fundamental reason that observational studies are really tough is because if your treatment assignment isn't random, there's always a chance that you're going to have something that influences the chance that you get into one group that also influences the outcome or a confounder. Um, and so what the uh, regression discontinuity analysis is, is that if you have, you know, some variable where due to the clinical decision making, for example, there's a threshold that really makes a big difference on which treatment you're going to get, that you can look at the people that are on either side of that threshold and they're going to be mostly the same because there's, you know, in most cases, nothing magical about the threshold. Um, and so that, you know, if a difference in outcome is seen between people that are say right below a threshold and the people that are right above the threshold, and it's because those folks got the intervention, then you can attribute that difference to the effect the intervention has. And so, you know, putting the details to this study, they used that setup to evaluate D-dimers. You know, so folks come into the emergency department, they get a D-dimer. If they're below the 500 traditional uh, cutoff in the PE algorithm, they're much less likely to get a CTPA than the folks that are just above 500. Um, and this particular study kind of came out before the age-adjusted D-dimer or pretest-adjusted D-dimers that are sometimes used now. And so roughly 500 is kind of the threshold where folks who have a D-dimer above five, uh, 500 are very likely to get a contrasted CT scan and folks below it are not likely to get one. And so the fundamental hypothesis here is that, you know, if CT contrast causes kidney injury, you'd expect to see a jump in kidney injury in those folks that are right above the threshold as opposed to right below it. And so, you know, the way that they approach this is, you know, they looked at essentially all of the folks in Alberta um, that in, in Canada, they have sort of an integrated health system. So they're able to interrogate the records from essentially the entire province. And Joe they looked Lawrence. at, uh, yeah, yeah. So um, 150,000 uh, folks that had a D-dimer in the emergency department and a serum creatinine. And they included all of them. They looked at a primary outcome of estimated GFR 60 days after that initial assessment. And the authors said they chose that as an outcome as opposed to, you know, say, actually looking at folks' creatinines immediately after, you know, the traditional uh, definition of AKI for two reasons. You know, one reason is that folks that get contrast get more creatinines checked afterwards because folks are worried about uh, contrast-induced nephropathy. And so, you know, the more often you're checking creatinines, the more chance you're going to find a creatinine that's increased and therefore label somebody with an AKI, even though maybe there's no difference between the groups. And so that's one reason they did that way. The other reason is that they said, you know, 60-day estimated 
uh, GFR is really a more patient-centered outcome. You know, that patients don't really care if they have a transient bump in their creatinine unless that translates into an increased risk of kidney injury down the line. So they used this outcome of uh, estimated GFR 60 days uh, after the initial assessment and said, you know, is there any jump depending on which side of that threshold patients were on. And, um, you know, to jump to the chase, essentially the results of their article is that um, they confirmed that folks that were right below the threshold were roughly similar to folks uh, right above the threshold in all the different ways they could measure. They confirmed that folks right below the threshold got many less CT scans than folks right above the threshold. And they confirmed that there's no hint of a difference in rates of kidney dysfunction 60 days um, after getting contrast, um, which is pretty strong evidence that, you know, there's not a clinically impactful difference among all comers uh, in, in the rates of kidney dysfunction 60 days down the line after getting contrast for a CT scan. Um, and so, you know, the authors are quick to point out a couple of limitations to this, you know, that you're trying to get an estimated effect on, on all of these uh, patients. You don't necessarily have as much power to say, you know, in the different subgroups, you know, say among folks that have chronic kidney disease who tend to be the ones that we clinically worry about the most, you know, would there be an effect in that subgroup? You know, they are a little underpowered to tell that, but it's such a huge sample and they, you know, ran a regression analysis to say, Hey, does it seem like this effect is mediated, is mediated, excuse me, at all based on uh, baseline GFR. And again, no difference. And this is, you know, consistent with the uh, prior observational research. And it sort of brings up an interesting point to say, you know, that this method of doing a discontinuity analysis the hope is that it'll control both for confounders you know about, but also for ones that you don't know about, similar to a randomized control trial. And that in you know, the current environment of medical ethics, no IRB is ever going to approve a study to say, hey, let's randomize people to get contrast and see if it hurts their kidneys. You know, just generally you can't randomize to look for harm in one of the groups. And so this is probably like the strongest evidence we're likely to get on this question. And, and at least to my mind, it's a pretty definitive no, um, that it doesn't seem like there's much of a um, evidence that contrast-induced nephropathy after a CT scan in a situation like this really causes much lasting kidney injury. So I think it's a pretty, I'm, um, you know, of one of the more interesting studies I've read recently and definitely is going to go to the top of my list of articles to have on hand when somebody uh, tries to talk themselves out of a contrasted CT scan for fear of kidney injury. Right on. Nice, nicely done. Um, and I agree. I think, you know, just given how gigantic their sample size was and this very clever way of, of breaking up the two groups right around that cutoff, um, I think it's a pretty compelling study. I found some things in it interesting, you know, they, they do talk about, um, you know, like, like you mentioned, there's this selection bias that you could introduce if you're looking for acute kidney injury, if you're looking at these creatinines measured right after the contrast was given. 
Um, and they do, they do talk about, cause they, they look at that too, as one of kind of their secondary things where they're, they're looking to see if there is more AKI and you know, the, the point estimate and the upper 95% confidence interval of, of AKI outcome was consistent with a clinically significant association, but it wasn't statistically significant, but their point was, well, if there was an acute kidney injury, it didn't result in any long-term injury, at least based on the primary analysis. So kind of who cares if the creatinine went up for a little bit after they got contrast because in the long term there was no increased rate of dialysis or or long-term kidney issues so um they, they they did talk about like people with diabetes um potentially had point estimates that were compatible with clinically significant harm and and so that's something that they recommended probably should be studied more in the future um, and I think that's a tough group because a lot of them already have some CKD. And, and like you mentioned, this, this, despite having a gigantic sample size, didn't have the power to look at some of these subgroups that we care about. And the one that I care about the most is people with CKD, right? Like their GFR is less than 30 or whatever. Um, because those are the ones that you, you really, like if someone's GFR is 70, like I don't care about CTP. I'm going to get it every time. But if, they, you know, have a baseline creatinine of three. And then I'm like, you still have a little bit of heartburn when you order that CT scan, even though there's all this observational data that says it's okay. <laughs> so those, those are my, you know, couple thoughts on it. Yeah, it's interesting with the, with the point on the creatinines, you know, they did provide evidence in the appendix that the folks that got the contrasted scans had more creatinines checked, you know, sort of furthering their hypothesis that, um, it may be actually an ascertainment bias that leads to that, but it is hard to know whether that is the case. You know, they can't prove that it's because you were checking it more often because by definition you don't have those creatinines in the other group that's not getting it checked as often, or whether it is these transient um, AKI uh, diagnoses that don't lead to lasting impairment, which, you know, I feel like we often you know, things like when somebody finishes diuretics and bumps their creatinine where we're fairly confident that has no lasting impact, but we still label it as an AKI. Uh, I don't know. It's, I guess it's definition night on this week in medicine, but um, speaks to how hard it is to actually define what's going on in the kidneys. I think that's a valid point in that maybe this just represents an opportunity to have a little bit of a paradigm shift around AKI, you know, especially contrast induced AKI, whatever, whatever it, it is or whatever you want to call it. Right. I mean, this study, I think provides significant evidence that there is no significant lasting harm from contrast. And so what, you know, maybe checking and hospitalizing and, you know, sort of freaking out about a 0.3 increase in creatinine is not, I mean, not that we do that, but, you know, is not warranted nor necessary and that we should, like you're suggesting, Brian, probably just get the studies we think we need and not get the ones that we don't think we need. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, AKI is kind of a black box, right? I mean, people get admitted, you know, the ER calls with whatever, and they have a creatinine of two and a half from a baseline of one. It's like, whether it's contrast induced or not, does that, is that clean, clinically meaningful and requires hospitalization, workup and intervention? Perhaps not, especially in the setting of contrast. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah, and it's also, it's interesting to think because, you know, there is a harm to foregoing these scans in folks that you would otherwise get it on, you know, assuming you're 
your clinical assessment that they need to scan in the first place is correct, you know, that you're likely missing some diagnoses, but it's so much harder in your brain or, you know, for anybody to track really like how, how much is not getting all these scans leading to adverse outcomes. You know, if contrast induced nephropathy isn't real, then it turns out that all of the misdiagnoses are sort of excess that could be intervened upon, but it's just so much harder both from a systems level, like how do you encourage folks to get those scans? It's much harder to, you know, get a best practice alert in the chart that says, hey, you, you are thinking about ordering the scan, just do it, as opposed to the other way of, you know, I'll, I'll mention one of our sites not to be named, but, you know, they have a best practice alert that says give 500 cc's of normal saline to all these people with borderline creatinines that are going to get a contrasted scan. And so then it's, you know, we're giving a known nephrotoxin that's been shown not to work for a condition that may or may not exist. You know, it's probably not helpful, but there's just so much clinical inertia there. I think I might know what, what hospital you're talking about. Um, no, I, it, yeah, I mean, this has just always been so interesting. Like I, I just, I just had this patient like a month ago that was, that I picked up that had been in the hospital already for a few days and, and he came in with breathlessness and definitely had risk factors for VTE. And someone got a D-dimer at the time of admission, and it was very elevated, right? But because this guy had CKD, they did not scan him. But he also had diastolic heart failure, and so they were basically like, oh, well, we'll just treat this like a HEFPEF exacerbation, and, and just started like diuresing the stink out of him, like pretty aggressively. And, uh, and so I pick him up and he's, he's still getting diarrhea, but he's really not peeing that much. And, and he's so breathless still. And I see that stupid D-dimer on my first day of work. And I'm like, oh man, we never made sure this guy didn't have a PE. Gosh dang it. Like now it's on me to decide. And his cranning is like 2.5. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, I don't believe in contrast nephropathy, you know, or at least I'm agnostic. So <laughs> like, so I, I go ahead and order the CTPA. I'm like, I don't care. I'm just going to get it. And sure enough, radiology pages me like 20 minutes later and they're like, are you sure you want to get this? And I'm like, yes. They're like, okay, well, I need you to talk to our, our uh, radiologist. And, and luckily it was a friend from medical school and, and she's very cordial and intelligent and said, yeah, we don't probably really believe in this, but we just have to check with you anyway. And I'm like, great, let's do it. So she pushed it through. We got the scan. He didn't have a PE. He did have pulmonary edema, so he needed more diuresis. Um, and the next day, or like two days later, his creatinine is 4.3. And I'm like, gosh dang it, was it the contrast? Is that what did this? And I never really believed that, but it was still there. I was like, this just doesn't look good. The timing doesn't look good. He's got this classic 48-hour bump, right? And I end up discharging him with the creatinine of like 3.9 with like close follow-up with his nephrologist. And his nephrologist is like, eh, eh, he's, he's, he's headed towards dialysis anyway. It's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but I was like all panicked, like, oh, crap, I just fried this guy's kidneys, but it was probably just the Bumex. <laughs> you did him a favor, man. You got him the fistula he needed, you know, then he, they started planning for it. Just bump the creatinine so that we can get on with the dialysis planning. <laughs> <laughs> oh man uh your poor listeners you know we're coming in with uh don't treat pneumonia with antibiotics and fry all your patients kidneys i don't even want to know what's next from uh 
our third article. Well, two weeks ago, we said we're going to not do CTPAs for PEs anymore. Was that two weeks ago, Jenkins? I don't remember when it was, but you know, we're not doing CT scans for PEs anymore. They're, we way overdo it. Now we're saying get the scans. <laughs> so, oh, I, I mean, I always get the scan if the algorithm leads me there, but I always get a pretest probability first. Okay. Good save. There you All go. Right. Nice. Well, um, Brian, despite your fears about the third uh, article, we are going to have to move on to that. And so I got the last one here, and it is uh, the title is Effectiveness and Safety of Direct Oral Anticoagulants Versus Warfarin in Patients with Valvular Atrial Fibrillation. So this was published online uh, March 30th in the Annals of Internal Medicine. And so as most of our listeners probably know, uh, DOACs have become the preferred agents for treatment for non-valvular atrial fibrillation. There are multiple guidelines that recommend them as kind of the first-line therapy. Um, and because the original DOAC trials like Rocket AF and Aristotle and Rely excluded most patients with valvular heart disease, DOACs have not been approved for valvular atrial fibrillation. But what is valvular heart disease exactly? Uh, I think it's worth uh, mentioning that not all valvular disease is equal. Uh, the 2014 AHA ACC guidelines define non-valvular atrial fibrillation as AFib without rheumatic mitral stenosis, a mechanical or bioprosthetic heart valve, or mitral valve repair. So patients who have any of those things would be considered to have valvular AFib according to the AHA ACC. The European Heart Rhythm Association has slightly different, different definition. They break it down into type 1 or type 2 valvular heart disease, and type 1 is moderate to severe mitral stenosis of rheumatic origin or my mechanical valve replacement, and those patients should only receive warfarin um, by their guidelines. So this paper is looking at whether you could use DOAX in people with valvular AFib because even though the guidelines recommend against it, uh, doctors still prescribe DOAX for this indication um, because a lot of patients do not do well with warfarin. And so DOAX in some instances is kind of the next best thing that you have. And so there's, there's quite a few patients who have received DOAX therapy for this. And this paper is a retrospective cohort study of a large administrative database that captures data from privately insured U.S. Uh, patients. And so this database includes uh, demographic data, outpatient and inpatient claims, and prescription drug claims. And so they were able to include patients with at least one prescription dispensed for a DOAC or warfarin, and a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation and valvular heart disease based on ICD-9 and ICD-10 codes. Um, they included all types of valvular heart disease, including tricuspid and pulmonic valve disease, uh, and they excluded patients with ESRD, hip or knee replacement, history of stroke, uh, bioprosthetic or mechanical heart valves. So the primary outcome that they were looking at in this group was a composite of ischemic stroke or systemic embolism based on ICD-9 and ICD-10 codes. And the primary safety outcome was major bleeding, which was a composite of GI or intracranial bleeding also based on ICD-9 and 10 codes. So they use propensity score matching to account for any confounding by indication. Uh, so each DOAC user was matched one-to-one -one with a warfarin user based on a propensity score within 0.01 standardized differences. Um, they also did a bunch of sensitivity analyses to kind of examine the robustness of their primary analysis. Uh, 
So they included uh, 28,168 DOAC users and 28,168 warfarin users. And uh, the results were that the DOAC users had 3.9 primary events, so that was that composite of stroke or systemic embolism per 100 person years, compared to six events per 100 person years in the warfarin users with a hazard ratio of 0.64, which was statistically significant. And the DOAC users had, a 7 point, had 7.1 major bleeding events per 100 person years compared with 10.6 events in the warfarin users with the hazard ratio of 0.67, also statistically significant. So their general conclusion was that uh, patients with valvular heart disease based on ICD-9 and 10 codes who got DOACs had fewer strokes and less bleeding than patients who were on warfarin. Um, when they did sensitivity analyses for each type of valvular heart disease, they had similar findings. Uh, the confidence intervals for pulmonic valve disease and mitral regurgitation were not statistically significant because they had pretty small samples. Um, interesting to look at the mitral uh, valve disease patients. They had 15,602 patients with mitral valve disease, and, and based on the guidelines, those are kind of the patients you worry about the most with valvular AFib. Um, only 3,854 of those patients had mitral stenosis. 10,999 were labeled as unspecified mitral valve disease. So I think that kind of just reflects that ICD nine and 10 codes can only get you so far. Um, but the findings were statistically significant for the patients with mitral stenosis. Uh, they also did subgroup analyses for apixaban and rivaroxaban, which were consistent with the primary findings. Um, when they looked at dabigatran, uh, rates of stroke were not statistically different than warfarin, but the rates of bleeding were lower. So, what does all this mean, and does it change our understanding of using DOACs for valvular heart disease? I think it definitely shows that there's prob it's probably safe to use DOACs in these patients. Um, but since I, I think the problem I have with the study is that they included all valvular heart disease, um, and so you're you're talking tricuspid regurg, who cares? You're talking you know pulmonic valve disease, and, and maybe that has more effect. Aortic valve disease, you know, aortic stenosis probably has an effect, but I don't usually care that much about that when I'm prescribing these medications. So it, it wasn't super focused on these, these, you know, mitral stenosis patients that they worry about in the guidelines. Um, but I think overall, it, it probably is safe to use DOACs in people with valvular heart disease. I don't know what your guys' take was on that. DOACs for everyone. Big DOAC guy. No, <laughs> I think my, my biggest criticisms were similar to yours. Um, the ICD issue, you know, is is uh, frequently brought up and I think does not give you a very, um, you know, fine tooth comb by any stretch of the imagination. Um, they also had pretty low chads 2 vas scores. You know, there was only 16 to 18% with a chads 2 vas greater than or equal to 3. So, so you wonder, you know, if, if the higher risk folks, what, what they would look like if, if there's any difference there. Not that you would think that there would be, but, but worth mentioning. Um, and yeah, the heterogeneity of, of, of quote-unquote valvular AFib is still, you know, an issue for me. I mean, they do try to clearly define it and, and do tell you who they're talking about. But um, 
I, th- I mean, I think it's like you're saying, probably safe to use. And, you know, the more time goes on, the more comfortable we get with DOAX. And we've talked ad nauseum about DOAX on our podcast. And I think we're, you know, pretty, uh, we like them. <laughs> yeah, I think sort of an interesting uh, methods point, uh, contrasting this versus the last study we talked about is, you know, when you're doing a propensity matching, um, you can only match on the things that you have information on and that you think are going to influence the likelihood of your outcome. And so that can be important if you're doing a medical record-based study, because, you know, as we all know, there's a ton of information that a provider can see by eyeballing a patient and knowing them that doesn't get reflected in any of the documentation. And so while they say for the entire data set that you need a pretty strong confounder to explain the results without a true difference in, or a true equivalence in the treatment efficacy, you know, you do have to wonder, especially in that smaller group of patients, you know, like the folks with mitral stenosis, where there is actually still some equipoise about whether or not DOAX are safe to use, that, gosh, you know, when I think of the people that end up getting discharged on warfarin, they're so much different than the folks that get discharged on DOAX in so many different ways, just because anybody that doesn't have some extraneous circumstance we're already putting on DOAX. And so I just worry that, you know, there still might be strong confounders in this data set that propensity matching really can't make up for. Word. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and and like you mentioned, like they really do have serious limitations in what information they even have access to. Like they're basically looking at mostly coding and claims and, and they don't even, for most patients have like labs, you know, or vital signs, like really basic stuff that would be useful. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, it's an interesting study. They're, they're trying to get at a really important question, um, but it's certainly not a perfect study. And so, you know, I think it would still be nice. It would give me less heartburn if, if we had a, an actual study looking at patients with valvular AFib, true valvular AFib and, and whether these DOAC, I mean, there's so much money to be made by these DOAC companies. I, I don't know why they haven't funded the study already. So, Dr. Locke with the stats bomb knowledge drop. <laughs> That's why we keep them around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fuzzy regression discontinuity analysis. I wish, I wish you would have said fuzzy more frequently. <laughs> oh, man, I didn't even get into the fuzziness. The fuzziness is pretty interesting, but that would make sure that everybody logs off before the end of this podcast (laughs) eyes glazed over a little bit (laughs) make sure uh, if you're on twitter you should definitely follow brian Locke on twitter he he always has interesting commentary so all right well it's uh it's probably time to get on with our evening so i'm gonna let you guys go but thanks again brian for for joining us and uh, we'll definitely make you come on again sometime oh man i'd love to this was a blast thanks for having me Get corked. Take note. (laughs) (laughs) All right. See you guys. All right. We'll see you.